Luke chapter 22. And we're going to start in verse 14. Luke chapter 22, reading in verse 14. We're going to continue where we were this last week in this passage. Some of the implications that come out of it that I wanted to make sure I deal with. So Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, as we examine your word, your spirit would be at work to use your word to examine us. As we try to understand this new covenant meal, this Lord's Supper, in which we have the privilege of regularly participating in, as we try to understand all the implications of what it means that Jesus has established this meal to fellowship with us in this interim time as we wait for his return where we can fellowship with him in the fullest sense We pray that as we look at this text and attempt to understand it, that your spirit would be at work to help our minds to see and delight in your truth, to change our hearts, to draw us ever nearer to your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started talking about the Lord's Supper last week. Last Sunday, I jumped into the first of three series, or three sermons I'm doing on the Lord's Supper, really on this passage. And the reason I'm doing that is because as I, as I jumped into this passage, I thought there are so many implications that fall out of this passage. And so many questions even that people ask us about why we do the Lord's Supper weekly that I thought I ought to address that. Why do we do the Lord's Supper weekly at Sovereign Grace? Why did we make that decision? And there were really three things that drove that. And or three aspects, if you will, three aspects of the Lord's Supper that drove that, that I wanted to start on and walk through. Last week, I said that the first reason or aspect of the Lord's Supper, which we come together to celebrate every week at at Sovereign Grace, is, is to look back on and remember what Christ has done for us. To look back on and remember that our redemption, the payment for our sins, The deliverance from slavery to sin has been paid for fully at the cross by Jesus in history. And we look on the Lord's Supper every time we come as a reminder or a pointer or a picture that tells us Jesus accomplished this for us. It's a great blessing. This week, I want to look at the second aspect of the Lord's Supper, which is that we presently receive, I want you to hear this, we presently receive the Lord's blessings that were bought for us at the cross. In other words, we're not only looking back and remembering what Jesus has done, 
We are actually presently at the Lord's Supper receiving the blessings that Christ bought for us at the cross. And the next week, well, actually not next week, in two weeks, because Brooks Buser will be here preaching next week and updating us on the Yembe tribe. But in two weeks, we'll look at the third aspect, which is the looking forward of the Lord's Supper. So we're looking back at what he's done, looking currently at his present application of what he did, and looking future at what he will do and what the Lord's Supper tells us Christ will do when he returns. So we looked at the first reason last week. And the first reason I gave is to look back. I just want you to remember that, to look back and remember. The second reason is that because through the Lord's Supper, the second reason we take it every week is because through the Lord's Supper, we presently receive the Lord's blessings to us. I am saying that we, every time we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to this, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are presently receiving the Lord's blessings to us in Christ. You might go, what? What does that even mean? I'm saying that there is real spiritual benefit. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? There is real spiritual benefit to taking the Lord's Supper, which we can't get through other means. Am, am I saying? You, you, am I saying that? Because I know some of you might go, what? You're telling me that there's real spiritual benefit at the Lord's Supper that we receive there that we can't receive through other means? Yes. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Now, now that's something you should expect me to prove from Scripture. I just made an assertion that you ought to expect me to show in the Bible. Because that's a pretty strong assertion. Most evangelicals anymore these days think that when they come to the Lord's Supper that it's just a memory. We're remembering. I'm saying it's something more than a memory. So do I have any evidence of that or am I just making stuff up? That ought to be your question. Can you show us that in Scripture? And I, and I want you to hang with me as I try to prove that to you from the Bible. Because here's the thing. And here's why I want you to hang with me. This sermon is one in which I'm going to ask you to think hard for our collective benefit and for the glory of Christ. It's my job as a shepherd to feed you, and it's your job as sheep to eat. Right? And so I'm asking you to do what I got to do all week long and in the last several weeks and just eat up the text and get all the benefit from the Bible that's here. I've got to eat, eat that up, and I want to share that with you. And I don't think I'm going to shoot over your heads. I'm going to talk about categories you may not be used to thinking about. I'm going to do that, but I, but I, and I'm going to push you hard to love the Lord your God with all your mind. But just because you're used to, not used to thinking about it doesn't mean it's really that difficult. It's just going to be new for some of you. Some of you, this won't be new at all, but some of you, this will be new for you to think about. And I want you to work hard with me to think about this. So when I make a statement like that, that the Lord's Supper presently benefits us in a way that other things don't, the first thing I need to do or that I find it helpful to do is to tell you what I'm not saying before I tell you what I'm saying, right? Okay, in other words, what are you saying, Chad? Well, let me tell you first what I'm not saying so as to oh, remove any concerns you might have or questions that might be out there or any confusion that might exist. What am I not saying? And to, and to say that, let me first tell you what I'm not saying when I say that we receive spiritual benefit from the Lord's Supper, I'm not saying four things, at least. Okay, so you ready? There are four things I'm at least not saying. Here's, here's the first one. I am not saying that the Lord's Supper works automatically. 
You hear that? I'm not saying it works automatically. In Latin, the Roman Catholics, if you guys are very familiar with the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper or what they call the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving meal, I don't have a real problem with the name of them that they name it, but what they mean by it. If you understand what Roman Catholics mean by it, they would say that when a priest prays to set apart the bread and the wine, which they do, right? The priest will pray to set apart these common things for holy use. When the priest prays to set apart this common bread and this common wine for holy use, that what the priest is doing there is actually setting this apart and so that the supper works what they call in Latin ex opere operato. You go, well, that doesn't help me at all. I, I know, I'm going to explain it. What they mean by ex opere operato is it's a, it's a work worked. In other words, the thing is automatic. It works because of the power inherent in the bread and the cup, regardless of the faith of the person receiving the Lord's Supper. You guys follow that? doesn't matter if the person really believes. It just works automatically because the priest has set it apart. It has its own inherent power regardless of the faith of the recipient. You guys understand that? Protestants, however, confess, as Protestants, we confess that the Lord's Supper only blesses those who are believing. We do not believe the Lord's Supper works independent of the Holy Spirit applying the blessings of the Lord's Supper through the instrumentality of faith. In other words, we believe that the reason the Lord's Supper brings blessings to us is because the Spirit pours those blessings out through faith upon us. Second, second thing I'm not saying. So I'm not saying it works automatically or has its own power inherent in it. I don't want you to think that. Second thing I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper is something we need for justification or to be forgiven for our sins and declared righteous. I'm not saying that. In Roman Catholicism, I don't know if you know this, you're only forgiven and declared righteous once you actually achieve that status. You hear that? You actually have to really achieve justification, in other words, really achieve perfect sanctification before you are declared right and forgiven your sins. You must, and how do you do that? You must believe in Christ, participate in the sacraments regularly. That's why they have Mass all week long, and they have seven sacraments. The Lord's Supper is one of them. You must live a godly life. And unless you're a saint who's been canonized by the church, you must spend time in purgatory until you've reached an actual state of holiness, and then you can be justified or declared forgiven and declared righteous. So you go to purgatory because you didn't quite work it all out here, so you're going to go there and pay for the rest of it. Then you go to heaven. As Protestants, we believe that God justifies or declares righteous or forgives the ungodly, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we believe that because that's what the Bible teaches. Thus we take the Lord's Supper as those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not as those who are looking for another spiritual activity through which we hope to be justified. I state this and stress this because this is the heart of the Reformation. It is the material cause or the substance, the stuff behind the Reformation. It's why we, are not, why we are Protestants and not Roman Catholics. 
It, it, listen, none of us avoid the Roman Catholic Church, at least I hope. We're not supposed to, as Protestants, be avoiding Roman Catholicism because of aesthetic issues. Well, I don't like that you have to stand up and kneel and sit all the time. And I don't like the way they do music, and I don't like the way the priest dresses, and all these sort of aesthetic sensibilities that people seem to be concerned about. That isn't the reason that we aren't Roman Catholic. We're not Roman Catholic because we believe they have a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Third, I'm not saying the Lord's Supper is a mass. What's a mass? It's a place where Christ is physically present and being sacrificed again. Roman Catholicism, they practice the mass. You know, you don't go to the church service at the Roman Catholic Church. You guys know that? You go to mass. Why do you go to mass? Because at the Lord's Supper, Christ is re-crucified for you. He's physically present there being re-crucified. Look at Luke I want to show you where they get this. Look at Luke 22, 19 and 20. And he, that being Jesus, took bread and when given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Now go to verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Notice Jesus says of the bread and the cup at the Lord's Supper, this is my body and this is my blood. And Roman Catholics have questioned me. They've actually, we've sat down, I sit down with them a lot. I have some friends there. And they ask me, well, don't you take these verses literally? Don't you take them literally? He says, this is my body. This is my blood. I thought you Protestants were all about literal interpretation. Why are you saying it's not his body? Here's how they go on to argue. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we know Jesus is actually saying that this bread transforms in its essence, its stuff, transforms its substance, and it transforms into his physical flesh. So that we're actually eating, chewing on the flesh of Jesus. Now you might go, well, does it taste that way or smell that way or feel that way? No, they're not saying that. They're saying that the accidental properties, these things that aren't of its essence, aren't necessary to its substance, those, those things don't change. So it still smells and tastes and feels like bread, but it's actually really been changed in its stuff, its substance into Christ's body. Jesus is saying, they continue, as their argument goes, that every time we take the supper, the wine is transforming in essence, in substance, in its stuff, into his blood, so that we're actually drinking Jesus' physical blood, though it still tastes and smells and feels like wine. They say that's the mystery and power of the Eucharist. If the priest blesses these elements, they have sanctifying and justifying power in them. In and of themselves, wherein we literally receive and share in the physical body and physical blood of Jesus. So when I say that we receive spiritual blessings that are ours in the Lord's Supper in Christ, I'm not saying that. Jesus is, is, is saying, I want you to this, he is saying that the bread and the cup represent him, not that they are identical to him. See, Jesus uses that to be verb. Look there, he says this in verse 19. This is, notice that word is, this is my body. Go to verse 20. 
This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's using that to be verb. What, what is the to be verb in, in English? Because we don't have an inflected language. In other words, our language doesn't just have a word that we add endings to and change, like in Latin or Greek or some of these languages. Because we don't have an inflected language, the to be verb is very difficult for people who move to America. You guys know that? When they come here and start learning English for the first time, they really struggle with the to be verb. Why? Because to be, if I want to go first person singular, I am. How does be and am have any relationship? doesn't make any sense. I am. She is. Is, am, be. What is it already? They were. Were. Was. Was. What in the world is going on? This verb keeps changing. You guys follow? That's why you'll notice a lot of people who are learning English have trouble with that particular verb. And Jesus is using that verb and we can use that verb in a variety of ways, and they could use it in Greek in a variety of ways, and Jesus is using it to establish representation, not identity. Let me give you an example. If I use that verb to establish identity, I would say this. I am Chad. It's my identity. I am. You hear how I use the to be verb right there? I am Chad. Okay. Now, if I hold up a picture of myself, so I want to use it representatively now, I hold up a picture of myself and I say, this is Chad. That's representation. You guys follow me on that? I am Chad, identity, pointing at myself. This is Chad, representation. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, he's using it representatively. He's using the to be verb in a representative sense on numerous occasions. For example, I am the door. He doesn't expect that every time you come to a door, you're going to go, Jesus. <laughs> Even if a priest play, prays for the door and puts oil on the door, it's still not going to be Jesus. I am the light. Turn on my lamp. There's Jesus again. Turn him off. He went away. He's back. Right? Okay. That's not what he means. And you see a vine. I am the vine. He's using that verb representatively. And we know that he isn't always using that to be verb um, to establish identity, for example, um, because when he's sitting there, especially in this case, he's sitting there with them. He's holding out bread to them, and he's saying, this is my body. He's holding out a cup to them and saying, this is my blood. Do you think the disciples were insane enough to think that Jesus means that's his physical body and that's his physical blood? He's sitting right there. It would be like you being nuts enough when I hold up a picture and say, this is me, for you to say, Oh, that's every time I take that picture anywhere, Chad's physically there with me. They understood Jesus was speaking representatively. So I'm not saying that when you take the bread and the cup that Jesus is physically present. You guys hear me on that? He's physically at the right hand of the Father. Fourth, I am not saying that the Lord's Supper is merely a memory. Now, I am saying it's a memory. I spent a whole sermon on the glory of what we remember. But I'm not saying it's merely or only a memory. If you notice the text, Jesus is telling us to do this. If you notice here, it says in verse 19, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so some Protestants following an early Protestant reformer named Ulrich Zwingli believe this meal is merely a remembrance of what Jesus did. And you know what my Roman Catholic friends object and say to me? No wonder you hardly take the Lord's Supper. I think it's just a memory. No wonder you take it monthly or quarterly. 
maybe annually or biannually. The early church took it for five centuries, indisputably, the early church took, first five centuries of the early church, they took communion every week. Read the Didache, chapter 14. That's the book that they used in the first or the second century of the early church as their church manual. They talk about taking the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day every week. That was their practice. Why did it fall out of practice? They say the reason it's fallen out of practice, Roman Catholics are the reason it's fallen out of practice among you Protestants is because you've degraded it to no more than a memory. Just, just so you know, it actually fell out of practice weekly for a thousand years among the Roman Catholics as well. They don't like to talk about that, though. So I, I think this is a valid critique, however. You guys have devalued it. You've devalued it. You've made it into only a memory. And why do you need to do that very often? You can remember the cross without having to take that all the time. Please don't mishear me. The Lord's Supper includes remembering. But that's not all the Lord's Supper is. It's more than a memory. So now that I've told you what I'm not saying, you might wonder, okay, well then what are you saying? That's a lot of things you're not saying. So why don't you get to what you are saying about the Lord's Supper? What I want to drive at is that at the Lord's Supper, the benefits of Christ's redemptive work are being presently applied to us. Okay, so through the Lord's Supper, we presently receive Christ's blessing to us. I'm saying that when we take the Lord's Supper, we are receiving by the Holy Spirit the blessings which Christ has won for us. So I, I want to provide three arguments for it. So here they are. Three things I am saying, or three arguments for what I am saying. First, we are currently blessed by the Father with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you hear that? Currently, right now, blessed by the Father with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I wish I had time to just camp out in Ephesians 1, but I don't. So look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. I want you to hear that's different about this letter than a lot of, other, of Paul's other letters. Usually Paul starts out identifying himself and then says who he's writing to and then says grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, here's what I thank God for about you. I thank God for this and I thank God for that and I'm praying for you for these reasons. That's almost always what he does. He doesn't do any of that in Galatians. He just gets right to rebuking them in Galatians. And he doesn't quite start that way in Ephesians. In Ephesians, that whole thanksgiving section and prayer for them doesn't come till verse 15. Something happens differently in the letter to Ephesians than in most of the other letters, and it's this. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's that? That's worship. Paul's just starting off with praise. He has suddenly got so caught up with and enamored with who the Lord is and what he's done that rather than getting to the thanksgivings and the prayers for them, he just breaks out in praise right at the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who's he blessing or praising? The Father. And what's he praising him for? Look at the next part. Who has blessed us in Christ. That's through, we're united to Christ through faith. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What blessings do you have in the heavenly places? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places you've been blessed with by the Father in Christ. That's why he's praising God. You hear that? 
He starts off praising the Father because the Father in the Son has blessed us with everything that we could possibly ever want, spiritual blessing-wise, in the heavenly places. See, I think we can easily fall into the error here of, of thinking of blessings we have in Christ stopping at justification. That's what often happens to us. So we'll say, well, I'm forgiven for my sins. And so that's why I despise a bumper sticker. And please forgive me if you have this. No offense to you, all right? But this bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Seen that? I hate that bumper sticker. I hate it. If you have it, just don't drive your car around me. You know, I won't do anything. <laughs> you let me tell you why I hate that bumper sticker. We're not just forgiven. We've received so much more in Christ than just forgiveness. I'm not saying forgiveness isn't gloriously good. It's gloriously good. It would be enough in most cases, right? Be enough. But Christ blessed us with so much more. The Father's blessed us with so much more. He's given us every spiritual blessing in heaven in Christ by the Spirit. According to Ephesians 1, 4 through 14, these blessings include, and I'm not going to read all this, but these blessings include, but are not limited to, election unto holiness, verse 4, adoption as sons, verse 5, redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins, verse 7, knowledge of his saving will, verses 8 through 10, inheritance of all that is Christ, verse 11, sealing by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, verse 13 through 14. And what's amazing is this passage is bracketed in verse 6. And then down in verse 12, and then in verse 14, with the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. In other words, we bless and praise the Father because he's given us every spiritual blessing that exists in the heavenly place in Christ to the praise of his glory. And that's a reason to worship. You have election unto holiness and adoption as sons and redemption and forgiveness of sins and knowledge of a saving will and you've inherited everything that belongs to Christ and you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of all your inheritance to the praise of his glory. You have all those blessings in Christ currently through faith alone, in Christ alone. They're yours now. They aren't just yours in the future. Are they yours in the future? Yes, in a far more glorious sense than they are even yours now. But they are yours now. We don't just enjoy them in the future. They are constantly being ministered to us by the Holy Spirit through the means of prayer and Bible reading and preaching of the Word and baptism and the Lord's Supper. And our present reception of and enjoyment of those blessings can increase. Do you know that? Which is why Paul prays on numerous occasions that that will happen to believers. Notice how Paul's always praying. He's praying things like, man, I pray that your comprehension of the love of God and Christ for you just expands. I pray that you grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of his will. I pray that you... Why is he praying those things? Because that can happen to you. You can receive currently, presently, more of Christ's blessings in the sense that you experience them. They're yours Objectively, but you can subjectively experience more and more of them as you go through life. So that's the first thing I'm saying. Here's, or this first argument about what I'm saying. Here's the second argument. The new covenant meal is a fellowship meal. When Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, in Luke chapter 22, when he makes this argument, this is the new covenant, verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus is saying, this is my body and this is my blood, he's initiating a new covenant. He's beginning 
when he's initiating that, a new covenant meal. In other words, a meal that you take because of the new covenant. It's a fellowship meal that belongs to the new covenant. And if you were here last week, you heard me argue that covenants are relational commitments. And they're often accompanied by meals. In in Exodus 24, when God makes a covenant with the people of Israel, what do they immediately do? They come into the presence of God and they eat a meal. Why does Moses tell us that? It's not just incidental information. It's because meals signal what? An intimate relationship, a fellowship that is ours. Meals often happen to celebrate a covenant and to enjoy the intimacy that the covenant brings. I have a covenant with my wife. Covenant with her. When we sit down for a meal together, we enjoy the intimacy of our covenant together. The same is true, by the way, in all of our relationships. Meals together indicate a kind of relational intimacy, don't they? The church understood this right away. That's... (laughs) They understood they had fellowship with Christ and with one another in the new covenant. That's why immediately in Acts 2, what do you see when they become believers? They start gathering together and hearing the apostles teaching and praying and doing what? Breaking bread and taking part in this new covenant meal. They had both a love feast and they had a communion, if you will, or Lord's Supper. Those two things were generally together, but they were two separate parts of one, really one big event. The question is, can I, can I prove that? Where does the Bible say that the early church understood this as more than a memory? Where does our final authority, the Word of God, say that the early church understood, and I want you to hear this, that they were actually in fellowship with or communing with Jesus at the Lord's Supper? Hear that? Because I want you to hear what I just took a step toward. I just said that Jesus makes this new covenant with us. He establishes a new covenant meal. And that when we come to this new covenant meal, he actually communes with us. Not physically, spiritually. He communes with us. He's actually present, fellowshipping with us at this table. Well, that's a nice assertion, but where is it in the Bible? Where is it? Well, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians If you guys are familiar with 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul argued that there's, that you could eat meat sacrificed to idols. It by itself, it's permissible to eat. If you go in the marketplace and buy meat sacrificed to idols, it's permissible to eat. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he deals with that. But his argument is essentially that when you go into the, here's his argument, essentially, when you go into the marketplaces, you're free to buy that meat and you're free to eat it, but don't do it if it's going to offend a brother or it's going to bring an offense to the gospel. Don't do it then. Don't buy the meat sacrificed to idols. It's going to offend a brother or bring an offense to the gospel. Don't do it in that case. Otherwise, it's free. It's just meat. Who cares what they sacrifice to it? Those idols are wood anyway. They're not real. However, Paul says something different about eating the meal served at the idolatrous feast. In other words, you can go in the market and buy that meat from some merchant and eat it even though it was sacrificed to an idol. You can do that as long as you're not offending a brother or bringing offense to the gospel. But what you can't do is you can't go to one of the idolatrous feasts where that meat is being sacrificed and eat it there. You can't do that. That's his argument in 1 Corinthians 10. These feasts that they would have, not only would they eat meat sacrificed to idols, but they would have big orgies. He said you can't participate in that. You cannot go to those feasts and be a part of their religious ceremonies. 
And he wanted them to understand that while they could buy and eat meat sacrificed to idols in the, micro, in the marketplace, they could not, were not permitted to eat that meal at one of the idolatrous feasts given to the worship of the gods. And as he teaches why they should not, we get this interesting statement about the Lord's Supper. Look at 1 Corinthians and chapter 10, and look at verse 14. I want to give you a little context. Verse 16 is where he says this. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless. He's talking here about the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What does he mean? That word participation is the word koinonia. In some of your versions, it might be a sharing in the blood of Christ. A sharing in the body of Christ. We could also translate it as a fellowship in the body of Christ. A fellowship in the blood of Christ. In other words, Paul is directly saying that at the Lord's Supper, we are fellowshipping with the crucified and risen Christ. Don't participate in their idolatrous services because he goes on to argue you don't want to fellowship with demons. You don't want to do that. Because he goes on to argue. Because every time we break bread and bless the cup, we're fellowshipping with Christ. And what fellowship does Christ have with demons? And you belong to him. You're united to him. You're fellowshipping with him. You can't go fellowship with demons too. We've been united to Jesus through faith, and when we come together to the Lord's Supper in faith, the Spirit of Christ is present at that event, having fellowship with us, communing with us. He is really present at the Lord's Supper, and His Spirit is really bringing us the benefits which are ours in Christ. Think of the gravity of that. It's similar to the gravity of the grammar in Romans 10, 17 when Paul's talking about the idea that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The grammar in Romans 10 is that when the preacher opens his mouth and speaks about the gospel of Christ and when he's being properly in line with the word of God that what you're hearing in your heart and your mind is not the voice of the preacher but the voice of Jesus through the preacher speaking right to you. Think of the gravity of that, that Christ comes in by his spirit and creates faith in you, creates or nourishes your faith as the word of God is spoken by the preacher. That's the gravity of coming to this task. That's why you don't come to this task in some kind of profane way. You come to it with seriousness and weightiness, which is why the men who come to this task need to be men of God who are having the character that we are commanded to have and who take this word seriously utterly seriously. It ought to weigh us down when we walk in here. I shouldn't be messing around with this text or this task because this is Christ's word, the head of the church, the one who created the universe. And when I preach this word accurately, he, by his spirit, speaks into people's hearts. That's weighty. It's weighty that when we take the Lord's Supper in faith, Christ is present fellowshipping with us. That's weighty. 
There's a reason to come to the Lord's day and worship corporately with the body if you could ever find one because Christ is there fellowshipping with you. What better benefit can you have in life? What other thing can you do in life that is even close to fellowshipping with the crucified and resurrected Christ? He is really present at the Lord's Supper and his spirit is really bringing us the benefits that are ours in Christ. Thus at the Lord's Supper, we do not only look back and remember the covenantal and atoning love of Jesus for us, and we do not only look forward, which I'm going to talk about in two weeks, to our great hope of eating this meal face to face in the kingdom with Jesus, but we really presently commune with Christ by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit uses this meal to nourish and build our faith. He doesn't justify us through it. He builds us up. Further, we commune with one another in a manner that is impossible apart from our union with Christ. We commune with one another. Because we have this fellowship with Christ and thus with one another in him, we have a deep fellowship that is not present anywhere else in human experience. Did you hear that? You might object, but I don't feel... You guys, you guys hear what I'm saying here? You have an experience of union with one another in Christ that you can't experience anywhere else in human life, and the objection ought to come from you if, it, if you're anything like me, but I never feel that. I don't feel that kind of communion and fellowship with Christ and his people every time I take the Lord's Supper. Sometimes I do, but a lot of times I don't feel it. Can, can I suggest to you that what you subjectively experience here is not nearly as important as what is objectively true. This was a problem at the church in Corinth. They weren't placing their focus on the objective union they have with Jesus and thus with one another in him. They weren't doing that. And as a result of that, they were being selfishly motivated even at their love feasts and at the Lord's table and weren't considering one another. They just weren't. Therefore, when they gathered together for corporate worship and to take the Lord's Supper, Paul actually said it was detrimental to them. Now think about that. The Apostle Paul is saying to come to corporate worship is a detriment to you. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, since you're there, at 10. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Verse 17. Paul has been commending them. If you look back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he says, Now I commend you because... He's commending them. Now in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Ready? I don't commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Listen, that's about as bad a condemnation that can come on your corporate worship service as I'm aware of. That when you come together in corporate worship, it's actually to your detriment. Because when you come together, look, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He's talking about factions that exist. And the specific faction he's talking about, look down at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, if you notice, Paul assumes that when they're coming together to gather corporately, that they're actually eating the Lord's Supper every time. That's his assumption. But then he's saying, but you're really not eating the Lord's Supper. And you know why you're not? Even though you've gathered to do that, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, 
Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What's happening is they're coming to the love feast that preceded the Lord's Supper. So these two things ran into each other. And the rich people are coming to the love feast early and they're eating all the food and leaving the poor with nothing. And they're drinking all the wine and getting drunk and leaving the poor with nothing. They're putting themselves ahead of the poor because they're wealthy and they have more value, right, than the poor do. And they're causing divisions among them. They're not understanding. You've been united to Christ through faith. You were poor, pitiable, naked, and blind, just like all those poor people are. Physically, you were that spiritually. And you've been united to Christ through faith, and so have they, and so you're united to one another, and you're not living that out at all. It goes on in verse 30. Look down there so I can show you that I'm... That is why... That is why, in verse 30, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The Lord is actually judging them in a disciplinary sort of way to the point where some of them are dying at the Lord's Supper. Not physically right there in the middle of the supper, but as a result. Because they're taking it in an unworthy manner, they're causing divisions in the body. He goes on and says in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry... Let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. So why are the, their divisions of the body so serious that the Lord is dis- disciplining them with sickness and death? Think of that. Because they're failing to understand and live by faith the incredible blessings of their union with Christ and with one another. And Paul is always appealing to the blessings of our union with Christ and our union with one another in him by the Spirit as the basis, as the ground for why we ought to strive to live in unity with one another. In other words, our union with Christ vertically comes before and is the ground of our union with one another horizontally. And he always grounds it there so that when you come to a passage like Ephesians 4 and he appeals to them to be humble and to be patient... And he appeals to them to be gentle and to eagerly seek unity. He goes and says, you know why? Because there's one body. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. We're all united in him. He doesn't appeal to their experience of unity. He doesn't say, you know what, because you experience this unity all the time, you ought to live in in light of it. He's saying quite the opposite. He's giving them commands to help them align their subjective experience with the objective reality. The Lord's Supper is so much more than a memory. The final argument for what I'm saying, the third one, here it is. The seriousness of church discipline. Did you hear that? Because we don't talk about that a lot in the church rarely even practiced anymore. The seriousness of church discipline shows that the Lord's Supper brings present spiritual blessings. When church discipline happens, a person is declared by the local church to be an unbeliever. That's what's happening. And is no longer allowed to participate, what? In the Lord's Supper. You're not a believer. You don't get to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's what the local church declares. That's why they call it excommunication. You're no longer welcome at communion. But they're treated like an unbeliever. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I think a lot of us think when we think of church discipline or excommunication, we think of shunning. 
not even talking to them anymore. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile and a tax collector is synonymous with one who is not of the people of God, an unbeliever. Treat him that way. Now, I have a question. Are you supposed to reach out to unbelievers and pray for them and be kind to them? Sure. Treat them like an unbeliever. That's what you're supposed to do in church discipline. But you don't do what with unbelievers? You don't join them in prayer as if you're worshiping the same God unless their prayer is for repentance. And you don't invite them to come and take part in the Lord's Supper because you know that's for believers. You're treating them like an unbeliever. Jesus goes on to say this in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This isn't about demon possession, guys. This is about church discipline. If, and I've said this to my guys in deeper more than once, if somebody keeps binding all these demons, the question becomes, who keeps letting them go? Right? What he's talking about here is in the context of church discipline, whatever you, and this is the perfect tense, have bound on or excuse me, whatever you bind on earth has been bound in heaven. In other words, it happened in the past and has ongoing implications. When church discipline happens, the church, all the church Jesus is saying is all you're doing is declaring what's already been declared in the courts of heaven because this believer or professing believer refuses to repent. And because they refuse to repent, heaven has already come in judgment on them, and you as the church are now declaring that to them. That's why Jesus goes on and tells you what your authority is. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I, now notice this, among them. He's present with them. Because he's the head of his church. He's the one making the declaration about this unbeliever. At the end of the day, the church is only declaring what Jesus, their head, has decided. They have no authority in and of themselves. Your local church, your elders, have no authority except what's borrowed from the head, Christ, in his word. That's it. But the local church does not just have a responsibility to do this, but is commanded by Jesus to do this. We just have a right to declare someone an unbeliever. Jesus gave us a command to do it. Now, now I realize many, many of you might be like, who cares? What difference does any of that make? See, who cares about formal church discipline? Who cares really about the fact that I'm barred from the Lord's Supper? I can remember Christ's cross without that ceremony. Who cares if I'm bothered with formal church discipline? Who cares about that? I've basically self-excommunicated already anyway because I don't really participate in the life of the body of Christ. I don't, need to have the, I don't need the church to have a relationship with Jesus, and the church has no right to declare me an unbeliever. If you believe that, you're wrong on both counts. Jesus not only gave the church the right to declare people unbelievers, Jesus gave the church the command to do it. 
Further, you do, I want you to hear this, you do need the church to have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus covenanted with his church. Did he covenant with you as an individual? Yes. Yes, of course he did. But his covenant with you incorporated you into his body, which you need. Which is why Paul says something like, hey, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together like some are in the habit of doing, but get gathered together so that you can stir one another up to love and good deeds. You need one another to stir one another up to love and good deeds. It's why Ephesians 4, Paul can say, hey, God gave, Christ gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? So that they together can grow up into full maturity. To say you don't need the church to be a Christian is to say you don't need Jesus to be a Christian for Jesus is present in his body by his spirit to bring real spiritual benefits to his people. And he's present in this way at the Lord's Supper. So let me ask you this. Would you want a relationship with anyone in which you don't experience the intimate fellowship of a meal together? Would you want that kind of relationship? If not then why would you want a relationship with the Lord in which you don't experience this kind of intimate fellowship at the table where he promises to be present by his Spirit to bless you? That's the second reason why we take the Lord's Supper every week at Sovereign Grace. We do so not only because we want to look back to remember Jesus' covenantal and atoning love for us. We do want to do that but because we want to really commune with Christ by the Spirit and thus participate in the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. In two weeks, we'll look at the third reason. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would help apply your word to us. We ask that as we sing together and as we participate in the Lord's Supper together, that we would remember what your Son has done, what you gave him to do, what you blessed us with in him. That we would be mindful of the fact that your Son is presently fellowshipping with us at the Lord's table. That that's objectively true whether we feel it or not. He's here. Just like the fact that you love us whether we feel it or not. It's true. Help us to meditate on that and think about that. That we Help us to look forward at the Lord's Supper, look forward to the return of your Son in which we will eat this meal again with him face to face. The blessed hope we have in Christ's return. Help us long for that day as we come to this meal that, we would just, that you would create in us a deep longing for the day that your Son will return. And that we will have Commune with him in the fullest sense. Pray that as we sing and as we take the Lord's Supper and as we take an offering, that in all of this, your son would be exalted. We pray that people here who don't know Jesus and aren't looking to him would be saved. They would recognize their need and turn to him in faith and be saved. We thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. May we never, ever take what happens here on a Sunday morning lightly, but recognize there is no greater blessing than the fact that you, Father, have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
and that your son is present by his spirit, communing with us, fellowshipping with us, and pouring out those blessings upon our heads. We're thankful for you in Jesus' name. Amen.